welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, the podcast for cars on screen. We start this week with some sad news. The passing since our last episode of both Murray Walker and the Queen of the Ring, Sabine Schmitz. And I've got to say, uh, well, Murray Walker was, I think, 97, if my memory serves, when he, when he passed. And talk about the voice of certainly my childhood, I'm guessing probably yours as well. He was the voice of Formula One. He was the reason that we all turned on. Quite apart from the racing, he made it exciting and glamorous and all of those things that everyone reminisces about the 80s and the 90s in Formula One. There's a reason why there's this groundswell of bring back V10s and all that kind of thing. (laughs) And I know that they were kind of late 90s and, and onwards into the early 2000s, but he had a gift for communicating that Mm. hasn't been seen in almost any sport since. I don't think there's been a sports commentator like him. I don't think there ever will be. He was one of a kind. He was one of the best broadcasters I think the world has ever seen. And it's going to be a huge loss, but 97 is a hell of an age. He did an awful Mm. lot even before he started commentating on Formula One and motorsport in general. So I think that's a life well lived. And there's a load of clips out there on the web of people with their Murray memories. There's loads of great tweets. There's a really nice piece that um, Martin Brundle and Ted Kravitz did at the end of testing in Bahrain, where they go through their memories of of Murray, which I really enjoyed. I think you can find that on Sky's website or possibly on YouTube as well. Mm. But there's, there's loads of great stuff out there and I think he's long since gone from the commentating booth and we've got some fantastic commentators all of whom are very quick to acknowledge that they owe a debt to Murray Walker laying the template for what motorsport commentary should be. It's also hard to remember sometimes that he stepped down from doing Formula One in 2001 because it just seems like he's so present and you forget that Jonathan Ledgard did it and you forget James Allen did it because you just think of Murray Walker when you think of commentary and it was rather brought home in one of those moments where I kind of cringed and realised how old I actually was when just after that piece you were talking about that Ted Kravitz and Martin Brundle did, Ted was doing his notebook testing roundup and he said to Lando Norris, what's your memory of Murray Walker? And Lando goes, when did he finish? 2001. I was two. (laughs) He is a young guy in the paddock, might be one of the youngest, possibly. But yeah, that's the thing. It feels like he was in the broadcast booth forever because he's forever associated with F1 and the fact that you can go back and watch races with his excitable pants on fire commentary means his legacy is always there. When you want to dip into a bit of Murray from from 97 on the um, the Schumacher-Villeneuve clash, it's mm. right there. And I know that race also contains one of your favourite Murray moments where Norbert Fant- was it Norberto Fontana Nor- yes. spends some time blocking the Williams and Martin Brundle, who was in the commentary box for the first year since losing his drive in F1. And I always felt was a little bit salty that year at being 
a commentator and not a driver. And uh, he offered a very acerbic observance <laughs> that Fontana had a Ferrari engine in the back of his car. And wasn't it convenient that he was blocking the Williams that was fighting Ferrari for the title? Accurately, as it turned out, Fontana gave up the goods on that quite a long way later and said, <laughs> yes, Jean Todd had come over and said, you will block. <laughs> and then left. And that was it. <laughs> it's the fact that Martin says that and it catches Murray momentarily off guard. And you can just hear that his attention has been diverted and he's having to sort of process what's going on. It's a really great, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of back and forth. And it immediately marked out Brundle as the real mm. deal when it came to commentary. I mean, he's a very intelligent man. He was a very intelligent racing driver. And he's gone on to become the gold standard for motorsport commentary. Mm. I, I think there isn't another country in the world that has such a depth of talent for presenting motorsport content. I mean, Brundle is superb, no matter who he's paired with. When he was paired with with DC in that one year that BBC oh, God, had him yeah. with, they were a brilliant pairing and, and Brundle kind of took on the lead commentator role the uh, the colour commentator while DC was the technical expert, which was a sort of role reversal, and he did brilliantly there. But he learnt at he learnt his trade with Murray, and he, unlike James Hunt, who was paired with Murray for many many years and had a somewhat acrimonious relationship with him in the in the early years. So so everyone says, um, Brundle's the cons- consummate professional. He does his research, he knows his stuff, and he much like Hunt, has the benefit of being able to say, I've been there, I've done that, I've raced against these people, I know how racing drivers think. You know, that's extremely powerful in the commentary booth. But yes, um, rest in peace, Murray, a life well lived, and we've always got those amazing commentaries. And we will be putting a link in the show notes to an F1 compilation of some of the great Murray moments, many of which I'm sure most of our listeners will be able to tick off on their mental list but it's I tried to think if I had like a particular Murray moment that I personally love like you've got with your Norberto Fontana bit I don't I think much like everybody the one that immediately comes to my mind is um, Suzuka 1996 there's Suzuka there's both of the, the Suzukas it's the I mean particularly was it which one was it where um 89 was it 89 or 90 where Senna just torpedoes Prost and it's oh my god it's happening immediately yeah. I, I'm I'm paraphrasing that's a dreadful I'm not even going to try and do a <laughs> Murray voice because that would just be insulting to the man but yes and I think in in one of the the retrospectives they pointed out how clever that line is it doesn't judge Murray never judged mm. it just communicates the the amazingness of what's going on you know there's a battle for the title and one guy's just nobbled the other guy because the other guy nobbled him last year and it's happened immediately it's so good anyway we should move on for more sad news um the queen of the nurburgring samin schmitz passed away um age just 51 after having beaten cancer once before um she then fell ill again um, and has sadly passed. And I was watching the intercooler, as it is now, with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel talking about it. And Andrew said absolutely rightly that although she was known for Top Gear in the wider world, the outpouring of entirely positive, supportive 
grief and memories has just been astonishing. Yeah, she was she was a legend to people who were in the know about the Nürburgring long before Clarkson turned up in a diesel jag <laughs> and attempted to break, what was it, 10 minutes around the ring? Yep. Something like that. Um, and then she gives the immortal line, you know what, I do that time in a van. Did you see Richard Porter tweeted about that and that line was her improvising? It feels real. I mean, you couldn't script that kind of thing. I don't think they could think, you know what, we're going to have another piece where you race around in a white transit where we've taken all the seats out. I don't think they planned that much. It felt real. And it was a fascinating. And I think at that time, she was probably still a BMW ring taxi driver. And BMW haven't run a ring taxi there in a very long time. I think the first time we went there, 2007, maybe, they were still ring taxis and i don't know if they were e39 m5s great car they were or whether they were e60 m5s they were e60s really great engine but not a great car <laughs> but, except i still really want one anyway she was a hero at that point but you had to be in the know and it's top gear that kind of propelled her into the wider consciousness and i think um on that same intercooler podcast they pointed out that this was one of the top stories on the bbc news website mm. that's how far her profile had got and It's a joy to see her totally naturally leading the way for women in motorsport and in the automotive industry without ever making a big deal about it. She was just somebody who could pedal and the fact that she was a woman was neither here nor there. You know, it would be mentioned once in passing and then it would be done. And um, there's been loads of really great pieces. Um, Dale Lomas on bridgetogantry.com has a really nice short sort of his personal memories of Sabine and there's a clip that's been doing the rounds of her in a VLN race I think just making mincemeat of all of the traffic as she looks to gain positions back on the GT3 cars and it's a wonderful demonstration of just skill and the right kind of aggression behind the wheel Mm. and most of all car positioning now she's racing a lot of GT4 cars in a GT3 car so she has an inherent pace advantage but it's really difficult to overtake around the Nürburgring. <laughs> like, really difficult. It doesn't matter if you're in a GT3, GT4, an LMP1 even. You can't pass unless you really know what you're doing. And she's just putting that car in places where the guy in front, or girl, probably guy in front, is forced to either defend or get out of the way. It's, it's a wonderful video. I really enjoyed watching that. I think her impact on the ring is, is probably best summed up by the fact that the management of the Nürburgring are already talking with her family, with her friends. And at some point they have said that they are going to look to do a permanent memorial to her at the Nürburgring, which I think will be very, very well earned. Um, and yes, is absolutely, absolutely deserved. I must admit, I, I meant to go back and watch a couple of the pieces she'd done with Top Gear with D-Motor, the sort of German Top Gear equivalent that she was a presenter on. That was quite fun. And uh, the piece I recall from her time with a sort of later Top Gear team was the King of Hammers race she did, where she's in one car and Chris Harris is in the other. Mm. Um, I'm going to go back and revisit those pieces because those are just, you know, it's pure it's pure driving and it's it's her unfiltered. And I think it's another, another great legacy to leave. It's a crying shame 51 is no age at all Mm. but um you know look at what she achieved in just 51 years right shall we move on to happier things let's let's and 
we've got a trailer believe it or not um a couple of episodes ago i issued a challenge to ed bolian of VinWiki and car trek to say if he was willing to record a trailer for us i would donate a hundred dollars to a charity in his name and he has and i'm stunned and delighted and let's listen to it now insert trailer here <laughs> Hi, I'm Ed Bolian from VinWiki and Car Trek on YouTube. And if you like the car stories content that we produce every day, I think you'll love the Auto Movie Podcast. I want to congratulate Martin and Chris on launching the new podcast. They're going to be interviewing people from behind the camera, in front of the camera, and talk about our favorite cars. You can download and listen for free at automoviepodcast.com and all the major listening platforms. They're going to talk cars, talk movies, and especially when those come together. We all love car films. I think you'll love it too, so be sure to check it out today. I have to admit, I'm stunned. It seems unreal to see someone I watch on YouTube with the dulcet tones saying my name and talking about a thing that I'm involved in. That's just amazing. Do you know how this happened? Other than because he doesn't listen to the auto movie podcast. He's got much better things to do. He's got loads of, you know, really flood damaged Ferraris to buy. How did he find out about this? I think we'll leave that to uh, to movie magic. Okay, okay. Suffice to say that there's been, as I, I said I would, there's $100 has gone to the Atlanta Children's Shelter. And our thanks go to Ed Bolian for reading out a, uh, a trailer for our show so beautifully. I uh, don't think we could have done it any better with a million takes. So <laughs> that's just awesome. I love it so much. Thank you very much, Mr. Bolian. Thank you. Uh, you have fans for life here. Definitely, and uh, we're going to have a um, we're going to have Car Trek Four soon. And I'm, has somebody already mentioned there's a Car Trek Five in the works? I haven't heard mention of it. I know that Car Trek Four is wrapped filming because I think both Tyler Hoover and um, Freddie Hernandez have said it's done and it's going to be coming out in May, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. And the cars they've got there, Ferraris, which is a good start. Ed's got a ratty 599. I do like 599s. It's another one of those early 2000s V12 GTs. I know that they're huge. <laughs> yeah, but it's an Enzo engine in a GT. How can you not love that? Definitely. Uh, what did Tyler Uber end up with? Was it a 456 it was a, GT? It was a 456M, maybe. But it had come from like Dubai or somewhere. Yeah, and then Tavarish has got something a little older. I want to say a 308, but they're really expensive, so I don't know. It, well, it looks 308-y, but I yes. think there's something going on under the metal. I don't think it's a bona fide... Is it a kit car? <laughs> I think it might be. I think it might anyway, be. Anyway. I don't know. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing new Car Trek, and if they're going to do a Car Trek 5, and why wouldn't they? Because I think they're, they're doing great guns. They're really engaging. Yeah. Then uh, roll it on. I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. Definitely. We've, we've also had a tweet since our last episode from a listener, uh, Nigel Fanning, on, on, uh, on Twitter. On Twitter. Hi, guys. I'm catching up with your backlog. You poor soul. Did you know of the deleted Blue Danube scenes from the Italian job, the 1969 version? This is one of those things that I I knew about and I see get mentioned. Have you? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Isn't this minis on an ice rink? Yes. I had a look because he sent a link and we'll put the link in, in the show notes as well. 
my god, the precision driving. It's a proper um like formation driving where they're sort of going in and out of each other and I it's well well worth a watch. It's I I must have seen this years and years and years ago. Yes. And I haven't seen it. I can't think where, but um, I must go back and revisit it because the driving in that film is absolutely astonishing, all of it. And you kind of question why with such bangers already in there, <laughs> they left this one out as well. But perhaps it's just a running time thing. I, I think watching it, it's a fantastic moment, but it it comes at a point in the film, if I remember rightly, where... They're on, they're on the getaway, and then suddenly the whole film would stop so that they had a bit of a swirly driving moment. That and then can work. On. But that can work, the kind of, you know, urgency, then complete break, and then back to the urgency again. That could work, but hey, you know what? I didn't direct this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of films with pacing issues, what did you think to Asphalt Burning? Or at least some bits of it that I told you about. <laughs> God. Yeah. So I did actually get around to watching this on uh, Netflix uh, last week and it's dreadful. <laughs> did you watch all of it or just the bits I told you about? No, I just watched I watched the start, which was awful and, and cheesy and, and awful. But very beautiful. It was shot very nicely and it's the Trollsteigen, isn't it, that they, they race up there? Yes. And then I jumped ahead lots and then there was a woman in the car that wasn't in the car before that I got really confused about. Uh, and then I we got to the, the Nordschleifer and... What about the CGI bit where they were jumping off the on and off the boats? That's right. Uh, it is crap. No question. It's <laughs> dreadful. It's not made in the physics of this universe for sure. It feels like it's from the Flubber universe where the car's just made of some kind of bouncy stuff. It's sub Gran Turismo 3 graphics just kind of plonked into a movie uh, and then there's the stuff around the Nordschleifer which is beautifully shot and is largely correct in terms of how far around the lap they go they do go back a bit and then forward a bit the weather is hilariously <laughs> you can't control the weather right no. but it's hilarious how it can go from overcast and pouring rain and wet circuit to baking sunshine <laughs> in the next shot <laughs> and the whole whatever that on earth was done to that 9-11 makes me sad and the, <laughs> the concept of just oh hang on we'll go all around and you'll be a rubbish driver for the entire lap just wait till you get to the straight where you can put your foot down and pass the Porsche on the straight, which requires no talent whatsoever. Unless you're Kevin Estray. Unless you're Kevin Estray, where it requires both talent and massive kahunas. But that's <laughs> not really passing on the straight. That's passing on the on the verge. True, true. And if you don't know what we're talking about, then go and watch um, the Porsche Endurance Racing documentary, the second half of which is dedicated to Porsche racing at the Nürburgring 24 Hours. And there is a particular pass by Kevin Estre on the leader that is punchy and ballsy, to say the very least. <laughs> yes. But yes, Asphalt Burning, I didn't... I enjoyed it a little, but I, I spent too much time nitpicking because that's who I am and that's what I do. Can't stop it. So I kind of got a bit cross after a while. <laughs> it is, you know, very well shot in 4K, but it's in the way of lots of the movies that try to make... Yeah. 
how many really great racing movies have there been or movies that have racing in them, racing circuits in them? Very, very few because it's really hard mm. because there's so much real footage out there that you can kind of, you seeps into your brain. And then when you see something that looks wrong, your brain's telling you that's wrong unconsciously. And mm. that's the problem I had here. You just go, no, I know that that bit of the circuit's back there and I know that that bit was wet and two seconds ago now it's baking dry. <laughs> How is this possible? Uh, I don't know what it must be like to watch movies and not have that going on in your brain because that's always <laughs> going on in my brain. But anyway, moving on a little bit, have you had a chance to watch the later episodes of Top Gear America? I have. I watched the um, the SUVs one that you mentioned. <laughs> so good. Which I, I was I was thinking about what you were saying because it basically just just go wrong from the start and the challenges are just awful and everyone is laughing and i i was laughing too i i absolutely love it the more i watch it i think you're right i think the further it goes on through the series the more they gel and it just really really works i think that there was i think it was episode four or five where they kind of revert to type slightly and start doing lateral g tests like they always do on most trend but no i i I really enjoyed it and it was interesting because i've also been catching up on the new series of top gear on bbc2 in the uk yeah there's been two episodes screened so far and i thought both of them were very good the first one i thought was amongst the best top gear that has been done in the last five years which one was the first it's, one? It's an, it's a concept that I can't believe they haven't done before. The cars your dad drove. Yes. I can't believe that they hadn't thought of that concept before. And because I guess, you know, they're all of an age where their fathers have sadly passed on. It has that poignancy. It has that sense of childhood hero worship that you have for your dad when he's driving the car. It's that route into being a petrol head, the car that you know the most about, the car that you notice the most on the road when you see another one is cars that are like your dad's car. And I just so good, so good. And it's it's because it's personal memories. Mm. They're far more powerful. You know, Chris Harris admitting that he keeps sweets in the glove box of his car that he doesn't even like but his dad always had them so he Mm. always has some it's a just a wonderful honest bit of tv that you don't often get when they're kind of arsing about and crashing things into one (laughs) another and it it was really good and then last this week's one was the bong cars bond cars which they've kind of done bond stuff before but again i think there's there's some enjoyment in them going into the back catalogue of like Bond baddie cars, cars mm-hmm. that were in chases and pulling out really random stuff that I would never have noticed. They did pull a lot of stuff from Roger Moore's era, and Roger Moore is by far and away my least favourite Bond. <laughs> um, I know some people love him. I have a friend of mine who is, is convinced that Roger Moore is the best Bond in the world. He is, of course, utterly wrong. <laughs> but he doesn't listen to this podcast, so I can say what I like. <laughs> But yes, I've I've, read, I've thought both of them are, they're almost doing more interesting things because of the COVID restrictions that are placed on them. They can't go travelling to glamorous locations, so they have to work harder with the idea and the concept. And then the, you know, the ensuing shoot, obviously they're going to spend a lot of time around the airfield because mm. that's a place they can control. Um, but uh, so far, I, it's like I say, it's the best 
Top Gear since my favourite set of episodes where LeBlanc and Harris were busy taking the mickey out of one another. So I've <laughs> thoroughly, really enjoyed it. Um, if you haven't been watching new, new, new Top Gear, then give this series a try. I think the first two episodes have been spectacularly good. Also, we had... You, well, I think you sent me this link. There's a documentary series called Expedition Back to the Future where Josh Gates, who I'd never heard of, is spending four episodes trying to find the Back to the Future DeLoreans from the film. Now, some of these are well-known. One of them was restored recently. I was doing some research before we recorded this episode, and this is actually aired in the US on Discovery+. Plus. Four-episode run streaming service and then it's been broadcast later no word yet on a uk release date for it although i might try some vpn shenanigans later see if i can get to to it on discovery plus it's christopher lloyd i think is in all four episodes he's 82 god bless him and he's still got that slightly crazy spark um the reverend jim lives that's all i'm saying there is leah thompson in it and michael j fox there's the guy who played uh strickland is in it and the uh i wouldn't be at all surprised if oh i've my mind's gone blank biff tannen uh tom tom wilson tom wilson not tom arnold not tom <laughs> arnold uh entirely different person no word yet on a uk release but if it's four episodes they are looking they're going on locations they've got a replica of doc's van from the first film they talked to bob gale because they always do. I think they're also talking to a couple of the people who worked on the restoration of the um, the previous hero car. I think the one that was sort of abandoned at Universal. So I think if you're a BT, uh, Back to the Future geek... You were going to say BTTF then, weren't you? I was, just because that's what it says in my notes. No, it's just because how you, you are a BTTF geek, and so that's how you refer to it when you're talking <laughs> with your BTTF <laughs> geek friends. With my... Uh, my fake Nike mag uh, shoes and, yes, hoverboards that don't actually hover. Do you have one of those hoverboards that do hover because of magnets? What, the little finger ones? Yeah. No. I've nearly bought one several times, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that no is like, but I really want one, even though I can't justify it and there isn't enough space on my desk. I... Do you have the Lego DeLorean? Yes, but I haven't built it because I've got one of the ones with the printing error. There's a printing error. I built mine. It's rubbish. It falls to. It, it's really badly designed and falls to bits really easily. I, I've been getting. Also, you shouldn't let your three-year-old son play with it because <laughs> then it falls to bits for other reasons. There, there was a, the initial run of them on the flux capacitor where it says "shield from eyes." They misspelt "shield." Well, like they put spelt it like cock. <laughs> they spelt it S H uh, E. I-L-D. Oh, that's less funny. It is, it is less funny. <laughs> if it had spelled it completely differently. I, I have been getting emails from um, bttf.com because that's a thing. Don't lie, you're the moderator, aren't you? <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, I, I don't know if you know this. Playmobil have been coming out with Back to the Future playsets that look amazing. There are there are many, many playsets, and there's like 1985 one and 1955 one, and I want all of them, but I have no space. And I would it would cost me far more in divorce settlement than it would in uh, what the playsets would cost me. So moving on, <laughs> shall we talk about movies with cartoon connections? We shall. We've got a good theme for this week. 
Chris is going to talk to us about The Great Race from 1965, and then I am going to witter on about Speed Racer from 2008. <laughs> I think Chris's review is going to be better than mine, as it usually is. But take it away and tell us about The Great Race. I, I must say, do you watch either of these films before we dis- we started discussing this episode no i still haven't watched the great race i'm relying on you to make me want to watch it speed racer i had it was one of those ones of i really should watch this because at the time i missed out on it Uh, it wasn't really my kind of thing and then i've wondered recently whether or not it's the kind of thing i can watch with my son and in the end i didn't end up watching it with him Uh, i watched it on my own and I may show it to him. I'm undecided, as we'll get to in, in my review later. Interesting. But um, I had not seen either of them. How about you? Neither neither had I. But The Great Race. So this was brought up by a couple of people that I have interviewed for the, for the Intermission podcasts. I think both Mike Spinelli and Misha Cherudin both mentioned it. It's a 1965 film. If you want a an immediate example of of what sort of era of filmmaking this is the first five minutes of the film are an overture with a title card on the screen that says overture there's then <laughs> an intermission with the title card and it it says um and then at the end it says um who like the main cast were on these beautifully painted um title cards and then it just says exit music while you get another four minutes of the score um this is proper old-fashioned Hollywood glamour. It was, I think, originally a $6 million budget, which became $12 million during the production. And this is like 1965, $12 million was, uh, at the time, the most expensive comedy film ever made. For some, although it was about 20 years earlier, I looked up, Gone with the Wind was like three and a bit million. So big budget, Um Tony Curtis stars as a daredevil called the Great Leslie, who has a rival in Professor Fate, played by Jack Lemmon. And we will talk about this because it's well worth diving into into a bit more detail later. The Great Leslie goes to a car manufacturer and says, we should have a great race. (laughs) Ding! And we will we will show how fantastic your cars are. And they went, but we've done racing. We've won everything. He goes, no, a race from New York to Paris, the long way round. So this is, you know, all the way around the world in, in these cars. And it it turns out that the film is actually very, very loosely based on an actual race that happened in 1908, going from New York through like Siberia, through Europe, ending in Paris. So the whole thing set about sort of 1908-1910. You've also got Natalie Wood playing a women's lib suffragette. She wants a job on the New York Sentinel newspaper and she's going to cover this race and she's going to show what a free spirited woman that she is. Um, she tries to get a ride with one of the other drivers and in the end she enters her own car and she goes off and does very liberated things. Um, the film itself was directed and partly written by Blake Edwards, not a name that I expect anybody to know unless you really know your Pink Panther films because he did a lot of those sorts of films. Um, he did he directed and I think partly wrote 
the the all the Pink Panther films that uh, you would you would remember and think of, and I think that's something that really kind of comes across in this. It's quite cartoony. It's quite kind of skitty in places. So there are set pieces. So you first see um, the great Leslie in a straight jacket hanging upside down from a hot air balloon while Professor Fate and his henchman, who's played by Peter Falk, who some of you may know as TV's Columbo, um, they're hiding in the bushes with a um, crossbow and they fire an arrow through this hot air balloon to try and scupper their foe. Um, the great Leslie throughout is Tony Curtis absolutely playing that big screen Hollywood idol who's always perfect and always gets the ladies and he's always in every scene dressed head to toe in white and it's always pristine and they have these little special effects where he smiles at somebody and his eyes like sparkle and then you've got Jack Lemon playing Professor Professor Fate this is said to be the inspiration for Dick Dastardly and you remember what we said about Ed Norton in The Italian Job like proper like mustache twiddling <laughs> yes yes <laughs> this is who he is channeling i haven't found any like where he said this but jack lemon is playing it up an absolute storm it's a brilliant brilliant performance and he um he is proper just he is the, he's the baddie who always gets thwarted he um he will sort of twiddle his moustache to the last and will try any sort of devious methods to get an advantage on his rivals. The cars are the Leslie Special, which looks like a car Liberace would have driven around sort of the turn of the century. Is it me, on tangent here, cars were better when they had the word special after them? <laughs> yes. I'm thinking in particularly like your kind of 1920s Brooklyn, Brooklyn's races the Napier Railton Special. The Fotherington Special. It's it's better because it's got the word special. Do you want to know what Professor Fate's car is called? Is it better than that? It's called the Hannibal Twin 8. And it has a small cannon mounted under the bonnet. <laughs> but then again, a great name ends in 8. Bentley Speed 8. It, yeah, yeah. Great name. Does not usually come fitted with a cannon, although I'm sure, sir, if you pay us <laughs> enough money, we'll see what we can do. The Audi R8. Another great car that ends in eight at the bomb. Definitely didn't have a cannon on the underneath of it. Although when it was racing Persia, it probably could have done with one. <laughs> and yeah, the cars are faintly ridiculous. The Hannibal special, aside from having an actual working cannon that keeps blowing things up under the bonnet, also has the ability to raise itself about 12 feet in the air um, because of plot reasons. <laughs> so you can totally see where the cartoon got all its ideas from because how many times have you seen that in Wacky Races where he overtakes somebody by just going up on stilts? <laughs> Doesn't that happen in cars? It's not. I don't think he goes on stilts, but he kind of bounces over somebody oh, yeah, yeah. at some the, point. It's the same kind of thing, isn't that? it? Yeah. The, the other great performance is also one of Jack Lemons, where um, as they're racing through Bavaria, they go to a reception held by a prince who is also played by Jack Lemon and is completely the polar opposite. He's this... In, you know, Futurama, there's Hedonism Bot, who's like a, a robot, like a Greek emperor, who s sits on a chaise long and eats grapes. Yeah. 
I, again, I think that character, you could probably draw a line back to, um, I can't remember his name. It's not a particularly funny name, but it's that character. It's all sort of high-pitched, always drinking cognac and just, isn't this all marvellous? And Jack Lemmon plays both characters, and there's there's a, a a a subplot within the film which I won't go into, which involves these two characters, um, culminating in what is apparently the longest food fight in um, movie history, which is a proper epic food fight, and everybody, including Natalie Wood, gets absolutely stuck in. And Tony Curtis does the Peter Venkman thing where everybody else is covered head to toe and he's there in absolutely pristine white. With I love that moment in Ghostbusters. It was in a, in a film that is full of some of my favourite moments in film and particularly genre film and comedy film. That's one of the best. <laughs> I mean, hell, I, I, Ghostbusters has got nothing to do with cars, but I love that movie so much. <laughs> and yeah, so the I think the film itself... I would say it's a good Sunday afternoon film. It's a long film. It's like two and a half hours. There's not a whole lot of exposition. So you kind of have to sort of catch up with who these characters are and what they're doing. And um, it spoils nothing to say that it's a bit like uh, Gumball and a lot of other films where there'll be a dozen cars start the race and like nine of them drop out. And you're only actually interested in like two or three of them as you follow them through the film. Um, I think it's, it's a film that holds up really well as well. It looks fantastic. I, I rented it off Amazon Prime, and I think there's been a good transfer of it in there somewhere. Um, but the, the kind of the, the the Natalie Woods character, which was the apparently the uh, inspiration for Penelope Pitstop, um, Maggie du, du, Maggie Dubois is her character, and again, it's a it's a strong female character. She she's well developed. She uses her skills she uses her femininity she is not afraid to do what she needs in order to get the job done um it's a really good sunday afternoon film i think if you're used to a hundred minute pixar whiz bang film i think you you know kids would probably struggle with it but for people who are the right age i would have no hesitation about watching it as a family film um if you like some like it hot, this is very, very much in a similar sort of vein. It's very character driven, um, and it 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 surpassed my my expectations. I thought it was something that was one of those films that people just sort of picked ideas off of and and left not a lot on the carcass, but. Apparently, according to, I think, Jack Lemmon's son, it was one of his favourite performances. It, it, it is well worth a watch if you want a good, fun, comedy, slightly skitty film that is in the genre of things like Cannonball Run, but better. Absolutely seek it out. Worth a try. I think it's £3.50 for a rental on Amazon. Um, and yeah, I... I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, and it's possibly one I would go back to. Great review. That's that's really interesting. Before I start on my review of Speed Racer, I have to ask, did you watch this as well? No. I you didn't? I didn't have time. All I know of Speed Racer is, one, the Wachowskis directed it, and two, that image of a boy dressed in white driving a car. 
So, Speed Racer, the movie from 2008, directed by the Wachowski brothers at the time, um, both since have transitioned from male to female and are now Lily and Lana Wachowski as they direct things like Matrix 4, but at the time they weren't. This is based off a 1960s Japanese franchise called Speed Racer, also known as Mac Go Go Go, which might be a better name, honestly. (laughs) Um, which was in sort of 1966 was a, a comic book effectively uh, and then was adapted into an anime and was released on Fuji TV in Japan in the late 60s and then I think must have been syndicated in the US because this is what the Wachowskis grew up watching. They loved watching the kind of hyper crazy manga animation and everything is very very stylized and so riding high off of their success of the matrix trilogy and then v for vendetta the next project that they took on was speed racer a movie version of speed racer and so let me give you a quick precy of the plot speed racer stars emile hirsch as Speed, who is an 18-year-old middle son in a car racing family who has a gift for driving and speed. His older brother, Rex, appears to have died in a horrible racing accident and he's got a race car builder for a dad, who in this case is played by John Goodman, a mother played by Susan Sarandon, who's very encouraging of the whole racing dynasty in the family. He has a very anime and not at all useless for a change, girlfriend, uh, played by (laughs) Christina Ricci, who really genuinely has a purpose in the movie. She's not just there to screech and go, oh my God, Speed, I love you. Um, He has a little brother who provides a lot of the comic relief and who, for some reason, has a pet chimp who doesn't provide any comic relief. Uh, And then there is a character, the mysterious Racer X, who uh, is an enigmatic driver who recruits Speed to help fight for justice whoever justice might be <laughs> that's like a, a pricey of the plot there's there's a bit at the start where where speed's elder brother rex becomes estranged from the family and then seemingly gets killed in an, in a, an accident and this you know, pushes speed to do driving himself and um take up the mantle just before rex died he gave his car the mac 5 to his younger brother um <sighs> You know that thing where you're editing a photograph in Photoshop and just for a laugh, you take the saturation slider and you just whack it up to full (laughs) just to see what happens. Imagine two hours of that. Wow. This is the most hyper-saturated movie I think there has ever been made. It pops off the screen at you. It's, I mean, if you were testing like a brand new OLED TV or something (laughs) and you wanted to see just how red the reds are or how green the greens are, you'd put this on. It's astonishing. It's all done on green screen. All of it. There were no sets. There's a couple of great uh, makings of that you can find out on YouTube where you see them making the, the racing scenes and some of the other scenes and the racing scenes they've got the actors in a it's effectively it looks like the kind of simulator rig that f1 teams have but obviously with a camera hung on the end of it and then just a green screen around them wow and you see what the actors have to work with in a giant green space and 
you see the end result and you think, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> Some actors in the movie do better than others. I'd say that Emil Hirsch is a bit more hair and a little less actual character and personality. Um, similarly, Matthew Fox, who I really like as an actor, I think he did some great stuff in Lost and, and other stuff he's been in. But here he's just, he's a chin. <laughs> he's 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 hidden behind a mask and, and he's all sort of sad, grim, dark. Christina Ricci's really good. And like I said, her character, Trixie, she's still flying a sort of spotter helicopter helping speed out when he's doing these racing scenes. The racing scenes are like a cross between sort of Mario Kart and I don't know. Yeah, some of the really more crazy bits of Drive to Survive where just explosions happen. It's just bonkers. The circuits look they've all been designed by MC Escher with a sort of <laughs> figure eights and... and uh, I, I honestly don't know how to describe it. There's a little bit of wipeout in there, I think, in terms of influence of circuit design. It's wow. absolutely bonkers. The racing scenes are so cartoonish and so vivid and choppy. It's really difficult to follow what's going on at some points. And the, the I don't know how you go about making this movie in your head and going, right, this is what we're going to do here and this is what we're going to do there and we're going to drop these there. It's a cartoon come to life mm. in a way, in live action, that I don't think had been done before. And it only, for me, partially works. Because I think the actors have got nothing to react to, it feels like some of them don't get it and some of them do. So some of them feel like they've come from another movie, which is a slightly more serious adaptation of Speed Racer as a real thing. And some of them have clearly got the tone of this kind of OTT, bright primary colours, candy bar explosion of a movie and are playing the right pitch. And so you've got this funny mix of the racing scenes where they're just, you know, jutting jaw and <laughs> turning steering wheel. And then you've got commentators doing over-the-top judging of what's going on. Weird tangent, I happen to notice that one of the English commentators is played by Ben Miles, who I know best as Patrick Maitland from Coupling. Oh, God. Also, the man who does voiceovers for lots and lots and lots of car adverts, if you notice. But um, mm. yes, as soon as I saw him, all I could think of was <laughs> Patrick and his cupboard of love. But anyway, that, that was a little tangent. I, as soon as I saw him, all my brain just went with, I should really rewatch Coupling. I loved that series. It's great. Anyway, the thing with this movie is it's too long and it sags a bit when it's not doing the crazy, crazy racing scenes, which are hugely entertaining. And at some points they stop in the middle to have a huge manga-like fight <laughs> halfway up a mountain where it's snowing and, uh, you know, there's rainbows and all sorts happening and then they get back in their cars and carry on racing again. <laughs> there's a sort of underlying corporate greed is bad thing going on to this that, that doesn't quite land for me where Speed is offered a contract with a company called Royalton Industries, uh, did, and he turns didn't down... did they buy Williams? <laughs> no, that's Dorito Capital. Anyway, <laughs> he, he's, he gets an offer to race for this company, and he turns it down, and, and it turns out that that company have been using their massive money to fix races and boost profits. And so he then has the, the people who do race for this company outgunning for him when he's racing. And there's a sort of... They're trying to do the whole big corporation's bad, greed is bad thing, but it doesn't quite land. And I feel like this subplot could have been excised and it would be far more interesting if it were 
just they were just generic bad guys, which is what you need in a cartoon, um, which is what this is. It's I found it fascinating to watch, but I'm not sure I enjoyed it. And it's one of those things where it was why I said I'm not sure if I'm going to show it to my son, because I honestly don't know if he'd like it. Um, the visuals are so dizzying on a big screen. You don't know where to look. Um, and like I say, everything pops off the screen in such primary colours. I think about maybe 20 minutes in, all I could think was this was made too early because it shouldn't actually be a live action movie at all. This should be full animation, but not anime animation. Like Polar Express animation. Not Polar Express creepy uncanny valley <laughs> animation either. I'm thinking of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse animation. So full on people rendered as people, but animated, you know, mm. like like Pixar Soul or something. And if you haven't seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, oh good God, you need to see it because it's incredible. And it has the same eye-popping visuals, but they work because they're in three dimensions and they're just pulled back a bit. Now it could be that the the Wachowskis were going for this literal manga is live animation thing where every background's a green screen and some of them are hand-drawn animation, uh, you know, to give it that proper anime look. But then it just seems odd to see a live action face or, or, or person in that frame. It just doesn't ring true in a way that full-blown 3D animation would. I mean, at the time, this movie was given middling to bad reviews. So Empire gave it three stars. It's got a rating of 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, audience score of 60%. It's, yeah, the general gist of reviews at the time were visual thrills at the expense of a a coherent storyline. And I think that's fair, but also this movie has gone on to influence other movies. There's a good degree of this movie's approach to visuals that you can see in the Lego movie, another brilliant children's movie that's you know, hyperkinetic, very cartoonish, very colourful, but utterly coherent and very... They managed to get all of it right in terms of their little nods and, and homages and, and digs to corporate culture because they focus on one clearly clueless character taking you through that world. Whereas here... Speed Racer. What a, I want to say, what a great name, but it's. I mean, it's a great name, and and you know he had an elder brother called Rex Racer, and races against a guy called Racer X. I mean, if you're called Racer X, um, <laughs> and if you say those two names, Rex and Racer X, quickly one after the other, then you may see the where the big reveal at the end of the movie is going. Spoiler alert, Mister Mrs X. You here's your son Racer. Racer. Yeah, what's he going to do then? He's certainly not going to go off and sell mortgages, is he? <laughs> He's in the maternity ward next to Max Venturi. <laughs> yes. Um, but you can see where the but the eye-popping visuals have, have influenced other movies. Edgar Wright's style in, in some movies, particularly I'm thinking of Scott Pilgrim versus The World, which is another kind of, has some cartoony visuals, but again, plays it the right side of cartoonish for me. I mean, I love 
um, Edgar Wright's filmmaking and Scott Pilgrim versus the world also got a critical kicking when it came out and has found a, a following since its release and Speed Racer there's been you can do a, a googling for Speed Racer retrospective and find people defending it vehemently as as a a work of art and I think they're not wrong there's there's real artistry here how on earth you make a movie where nothing is real and yet you turn it in and it's finished and it largely makes sense and it's got some astonishing racing sequences in it i think everybody who is involved in taking the concept of this crazy manga and turning it into an actual film deserves huge credit but it's not it's not quite as enjoyable as it could be if it were half an hour shorter and slightly less eye-popping in some respects. Maybe not for the racing sequences, but for the stuff that's not the racing. And if you got rid of the chimpanzee and the unfunny younger brother, then this would be a classic because of what it's done. And I have a feeling that maybe if they would, if this were made now with the kind of technology they have now, they could do a better job. And at the time, they're pushing everything to the bleeding edge, just like they did with The Matrix. And um, I imagine what they're going to do with The Matrix 4. So I think this is a curio. This is one of those ones where if you sound, if, if you feel like you want to see where where you can go when you turn the saturation slider all the way up to 100... <laughs> and you have some spare time, then I give it a watch. It's not available to stream anywhere at the moment, and um, I think you can rent it from iTunes for three forty nine, which is what I did. But it's, it's an interesting film, and I realise that sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise. It's an incredible achievement, but it, it's not something I wish to revisit, I think. Uh, I'd recommend, if you're curious, watch it once, and and come and let me know what you think. Um, not just you, Chris, but everybody <laughs> on the show. If you've seen it, please let me know if you thought it was any good. And if you haven't seen it and you think you might be interested in watching some of it, then please do and let me know what you thought. Because I'm really torn. I, I When I watched the first 15 minutes of this, I thought, this is dreadful. I'm going to have great fun tearing this to bits on the podcast. <laughs> and as I watched more, I thought, well, it can't be dreadful because there's bits that are genuinely engaging and amazing and, and the visuals hurt your eyes in some ways but they're astonishing nonetheless and so I couldn't go in and just go straight for the juggler with all the panning it jokes um, but equally I can't come in with a sort of a really positive gushing review like you have with The Great Race so it's a curio it's just it's its own thing there's not been anything like it really before or since apart from those things that take a little bit of the influence and go in their own direction like the lego movie and so on so if that sounds like something you're interested in then please give it a watch i, I love the um screenwriting advice make it half an hour shorter you lose the younger brother and the uh, monkey <laughs> yes, brother. Yeah, I'm sure William Goldman put that in his third book, Adventures in the Screen Trade Part 3, Adventure Harder. <laughs> Let's talk about the Ford Puma, because Henry Catchpole has been testing it and doing a very, very good video using a canal to link the car to its history, which is... Very good, as his reviews inevitably are. Although Uniquely Henry, I thought. Yes. So wonderfully delivered in, in such a... It's uniquely Henry. Just 
go and watch this car review, even if you're not interested in the Ford Puma ST, which I wasn't really, but I thought I'm going to give this a watch anyway. And then was just bewitched by the the whole concept of filming a car next to a canal lock and then having that be meaningful rather than just a nice location where no one's going to walk past. (laughs) Uh, It's just so good, so creative in an era where it's very easy to just go and, you know, bolt a GoPro to the front of the thing and then do some piece to camera while you're driving it along a country lane and Bob's your uncle, there's a review. It's just very clever, very original, uh, and made me watch a review about a car that I really didn't have any feelings about one way or the other. And that's, that's the genius of Catchpole. I am looking forward to what has been teased and trailed on Twitter and Instagram, which is at some point soon, a car faction video driving a McLaren F1, a 911 GT1 Strasser, Strasser version, Strassen version. That's the one. And a CLK GTR, all in silver, worth probably 30 million quid altogether. It, that, that will be a video to look forward to. Oh, and one before we forget, uh, when Henry is scrolling through the list of podcasts in the Ford Puma, there's, you know, blink and you'll miss it, we're in there, uh, which... I didn't see when I watched it and it took a friend taking a screenshot and sending it to me to tell me that we were famous. Uh, so thank you very much, Henry or um, Charlie or whoever on the Carfection team happens to listen to our little podcast. Uh, that that raised a smile on a very dull day. So thank you both very much. YouTube pick of the week, show and a channel if you have one. So I have two videos because I'm cheating. There's a channel by the name of Kara uh, and Nate who... Uh, this is going to wind you up. So they are a couple of digital nomads who go travel the world and make I'm YouTube sorry, videos. I'm sorry, what now? Digital, a couple of what now? Digital nomads. Oh, come on. What you, the fuck is that? You work in Shoreditch. You know what... Uh, I don't work in Shoreditch. I work from a cupboard under my stairs. <laughs> it It's one of those Nathan Barley things. So basically, they travel the world and make YouTube videos and make a fair amount of money doing it. They, because of lockdown, are having to do more US content and they've they've bought a van, as everybody else has. They went to the largest gas station in the world, in Texas, called Bucky's. So this is, imagine, if you will, an enormous petrol station. So 120-pump petrol station. (laughs) Only in America. Only in America. 120 pumps. 120 Uh pumps and a Costco attached to them. So... Apparently, it's, it's usually the other way round, isn't it? There's a there's a petrol station attached to the supermarket only because it's America and they have to do everything bigger. <laughs> it's the other way round, and there's a, like a tiny Costco attached to a massive petrol station. <laughs> the, so the store itself is apparently the size of 22 average 7-Elevens, and they've got a thousand parking spaces. And inside, they have got what's been voted some of the cleanest toilets in in all of America. 80 soda fountains. They sell things called beaver nuggets. They have a section <laughs> for hunting stuff. And um, they have so many different varieties of um, beef jerky you cannot imagine. But they have, like, they make barbecue sandwiches on site. They they candy nuts on site. And what Cara and Nate do is they spend 24 hours there basically eating, like, the top 10 most popular things and just walking around the shop going... Why would anybody buy this? It, it's well worth a watch just because you, you watch it as that kind of like um, vicarious 
travel thing where you know when you go to a foreign country and you wander around the petrol station and you you know you you pick up a you know it, well what what did we get in germany it was some powdered thing called bum and yes and there was this uh, now this i'm thinking of the petrol station uh ed tanksteller where there was a creepily accurate and yet not accurate head bust of michael schumacher yes you just wander around going, who buys all this stuff? Um, not to be um, outdone, Sam through, from Seen Through Glass did a similar thing where he went to the largest petrol station in the UK. Do you know where that petrol station is if you haven't watched the video already? No, uh, I don't know. It's uh, Lee Delamere on the M4. No, I think by law we must mention at some point T-Bay services and just how wonderful they are. But no, this is Cobham Services on the M25, which has just 36 pumps. And he goes there in a Rolls-Royce ghost and spends most of the video talking about the ghost. I now see why you're watching this. Uh, well, it was... It, he refer- he So he says that this is his version of, of the, the, the Cara and Nate video. But I think when he goes to a place that you and I are familiar with, which is just... A services on the M25, it's not quite as interesting. And aside from the fact there are a lot of petrol pumps there, it's just like any other big services in the UK. It's a services on the M25. Yeah. It's a hole where the toilets smell like poo. Exactly. Um, and there's a you know there's the stuff that you want to eat, and then a football, then a coach full of football fans turns up, and a I'm, mysterious gambling centre inside that no one ever goes in. <laughs> but yeah, watch the car and Nate one. Link in the show notes, just because. The fact that you can go and I mean, when I when I say that they have a hunting section, they literally like once your truck has filled up with moonshine or whatever they run them on, you can go and buy like a floating beer cooler for your diving into the creek, and a gun, and a brisket sandwich, and a bag of ice, and and go out to your truck and. Well, that, that sounds like a fun day out. Doesn't <laughs> it? Um, for my channel. Actually, picking up from one that you mentioned earlier, so Dale Lomas, who has lived at the Nurburgring for longer than we've been there. So I think the first time we went out together, um, us and a group of friends, he actually did the uh, track walk when he was working with RSR. He's now working for Rent for Ring, and he's making a big push this year on his content on through Bridge to Gantry and what have you. He's been putting out some good content on his YouTube channel, a lot of it at the moment is just going out and kind of going a bit beyond the ring. So you telling stories, showing sites that you may not have seen because it's not either in Adenau or Nurburg or somewhere between the two. So if you're into your Nurburg ring content, if you've watched like Misha's channel and you've watched a million onboards, give this a watch, learn something new about the Nurburg ring. Speaking of which... <laughs> well, yeah, you say Misha's channel in the Nürburgring. My video for this week is from Misha Chirudin, who we've had on the podcast and we've mentioned his videos before. Uh, and it's a Nürburgring lap, which I've previously said on many occasions that I wouldn't feature because I don't really watch them anymore. But this was a really interesting lap for me. This is a lap... Um, the video is entitled Maximum Attack in Porsche GT3 RS, Nürburgring and Pro Driver. And they're not kidding. Maximum attack is the word. This is a lap with a pro driver by the name of Kuba Giermaziak. I've mullered his name. I did mean to listen to him saying it so that I could pronounce it properly. I'm terribly sorry. Um, He's a Polish driver, um, was a pro racer for like 18 years, and he's in a GT3 RS. um, And he takes Misha for a couple of laps of the Nürburgring. 
being that he is a pro driver, he's pretty quick. I don't think I have seen a lap this committed in a Porsche since Kevin Estre's record or then record lap in the GT3 RS that you can't get on YouTube anymore. You can find it if you go and look at the Porsche press release page. This is almost as committed. It's not as fast, I don't think, because this is a public TF session, but it is also the most committed lap I've seen in a public TF session. He uses every inch of the track. Every curb is ridden. It's a properly aggressive lap, which is why I kind of watched it all the way through. And they do one lap and then they decide, oh, we've got just about enough time to do another lap. The other thing is that uh, Misha notes that the image stabilisation was off on the camera. And so the camera wobbles about a lot more than than maybe you might normally expect. That's actually a good thing because you get a feel for the forces that are being exerted. And, you know, it's always fun when you see these laps where somebody overtakes absolutely everything in sight. <laughs> uh, and this is like that. This is a lot, and this is a compliment to to the driver. This is very much in the vein of the lap with Robert Kubica, um, uh, another pole, obviously, who's been doing some driving at the Nürburgring of late. This feels a lot like that very well-known video of, of Misha riding with Robert. It's the same super comfortable at having the car right on its limit, right on the edge of grip, super comfortable using all of the track, riding the curbs, no... Not no mechanical sympathy, but no question that he's going to... The car is a tool and he is going to use it and he's clearly not worried about using all of the life of the tyres and the brakes <laughs> and the suspension and so on. It did have me thinking halfway around, what the hell must the suspension need doing <laughs> to it after like a season of this? You just need to change everything. But it's a really, really fun couple of laps. So if you're not totally burned out on Nürburgring laps and you fancy seeing another Polish hot shoe doing a couple of laps, then please give this a watch. And because Chris cheats every single <laughs> podcast, I don't have a channel at all this week. I'm going to go and call out a few channels whose content I have been enjoying of late, which include Usual Suspects. Tyler Hoover's been pumping out great videos to help pay for the two Lamborghinis that he's just bought. But I have really enjoyed all of them, particularly there's one about his uh, Porsche 550 Spider replica called the Beck Spider, which has got a Subaru flat four engine in it, which it looks fantastic. Um, I, I've quite fascinated by the concept of building one of those as a replica for not very much, presumably not very much money and, and it looking as good as it does and going as well as it does with modern underpinnings. Tavarish has been posting uh, some new content on his channel. I've been enjoying his second channel uh, that he does with... Um, uh, who's the guy that works with him, whose name have just uh, has eluded me immediately? But his second channel, uh, Wrench Every Day, where the sort of cars are slightly more down-to-earth, not so many of the um, Lamborghinis and McLarens and so on, some slightly more normal stuff. Uh, they're doing a Lotus Esprit on there at the moment, which is in dreadful state. Uh, but that's quite interesting because it's a sort of modern classic. Jared. Um, Jared, that's right. Thank you. Brain fade for the moment there. <laughs> uh, I've also really enjoyed legit streetcars. Um, Alex, who I think I featured like really early on in the podcast, um, his channel has been growing because he's been doing a bunch of stuff and he actually bought Tyler's CL65 from Car Trek 2 ah. and is busy rebuilding that engine, which is this insanely complicated twin turbo V12 that there's a leak in it. And in order to, to get the leak fixed, it's a two 
pence or you know it's a one dollar part but in order to do that you have to drop the entire engine and take the whole top of it off to get to that one dollar part so it costs five grand in in labor charges and he's doing this all in his garage wow uh so i've really been enjoying those so I don't have a particular channel. I've just been checking out those um, an awful lot. Also, uh, another channel I've featured quite recently, Mighty Car Mods, a pair of Australians who've been doing some great modding. They did a series on a, a very swift mod to an Audi RS3 that they've bought. Uh, but the one that's most engaging me at the moment is they've got a, what they're calling a disrespected Civic, <laughs> uh, a very bright orange la- um, Honda Civic, uh, I think I want to say EP3. I'm not 100% up on my Civic types, but the, the sort of the rounded one before they all got angular yep. and shit, EP3. and then even more angular and good. Um, but they've got one of those in orange that the previous owner had done some mods on and then not much else, and they're finishing it and doing it properly. And they're hilarious. They're great. And I've been really enjoying seeing them kind of put together a Honda Lego kit of, you know, upgrades. And they're, they're, they're describing how easy it is to work on it because stuff parts just bolt in and, and things just work. That's really good. So check any of those out if you're looking for something to watch because I've been enjoying all of them recently. And I think that probably really ought to be about it because we've waffled on for nearly an hour and a half. So somehow I have to cut this down to a sensible running time. No, no, you don't. Just just call it like the special edition or something and we'll... Uh... It's the Auto Movie Podcast special. Yes. See, everything sounds better when you call it the special. So all the usual stuff like smash that subscribe bell all the usual crap if you if you like the episode then get us on twitter at automovie pod and oh i don't know what we're going to go off and do we're going to go off and do some speed racing (laughs) see you in the next one